Hello, superhuman family, and welcome back to another episode of the Superhumanize podcast. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. The pursuit of happiness, which is a beautiful thing, can turn into an extreme when we become afraid to be sad and try to avoid it at all costs. Why are we so scared to be sad? And why is it not only okay to be sad, but important to sit with the sadness? Today's guest, Helen Russell, is a journalist, best-selling author, speaker, and happiness researcher. Her first book, The Year of Living Danishly, Uncovering the Secrets of the World's Happiest Country, became an international bestseller and has been optioned for television. She's the author of four other critically acclaimed books translated into 21 languages. Helen also writes for magazines and newspapers globally, including The Times and The Sunday Times, The Telegraph, The Independent, National Geographic, Wall Street Journal, and The Observer, amongst others. She spent the last 10 years studying cultural approaches to emotions and now speaks about her work internationally. In her book, How to Be Sad, Helen explores why we get sad, what to do when we are sad, and how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better, especially while living in these unprecedented times. Most of us are struggling in one way or another and getting better at having difficult conversations and finding ways to handle our sadness will help us become whole, reclaim our well-being, and be able to truly and fully live. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Helen, welcome to the Superhumanized podcast. It is so good to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I was and am really excited for this conversation, Helen, because your mission and your focus, your research and the amazing book that you've published is focused on something that touches us all, happiness. And the pursuit of happiness is at the core of many people's quests and what they do in life. And I think while that's a beautiful thing, it can also turn into an extreme, in my opinion, when we actually become afraid to be sad and try to avoid that at all costs. So I'm curious, and I would like to hear from you, uh, why are we so scared to be sad? That's a great question. It's really interesting. It's not a universal. I think it's worth pointing out. Mm -hmm. It's quite a modern, geographically specific obsession. In East Asian cultures, it's much more accepted to experience sadness and happiness simultaneously. There is nuance. In Maori culture, for example, strength and showing emotions are one of the same. Mm -hmm. I think that 
you can chart back the history of sadness. It's really interesting to, to do. If you look at post-World War II, for example, the scale of the suffering was just so great that people shut down. It was a case of keep calm and carry on. And there was this real emphasis on what you don't talk about can't hurt you, which we now know isn't true. And then in the US, it's really interesting. Jeannie Tsai from Stanford University has been researching into why Americans are outliers in their desire to avoid sadness. And the theory is that the first settlers from Europe were a self-selecting, intrepid group who anticipated positive outcomes and handled any negative feelings or situations by leaving them in the hope of something better. So that today, America is the approach is often very forward facing, whereas in much of Europe, it can be a little more backward looking. And you see this playing out in psychology, the emphasis on CBT, for example, in America, whereas the more Freudian approach in parts of Europe. But yeah, the UK where I'm from and the US where I've worked and spent a lot of time, they are particularly poor at experiencing sadness, I'd say. That is fascinating, Helen. I had no idea the connection with actually the yeah, the first settlers of people who came out here and then went out west. That uh, makes a lot of sense. So, you know, this and in the Maori culture, you mentioned strength and actually being with or all the emotions means the same. Yeah, that's right. The way I've had it explained to me by, by working with Maori teachers and learning more about the haka is that actually it's more of a a communal approach again if one person in the group is not enjoying themselves you change it the group changes and there isn't expressing emotions does not to make you vulnerable in a way that is anything like negative instead it's considered a strength and you see this in lots of cultures in in japan for example there are lots of great comparisons between the us and japan because they're both wealthy countries with well-developed healthcare systems in the us there's a lot of studies showing that sad people tend to be less healthy that we all hear that the things about happier people are healthier and often wealthier as well but actually in Japan that doesn't play out and what they found is that actually being sad only makes you sick if you're terrified of being sad so in Japan there is no moral judgment attached there is none of the idea that you should medicate away normal sadness and I'm not talking about depression here and I've experienced that as well but I'm talking about normal sadness the awakening normal response that we feel when we are hurt or something is wrong in our lives and in in Japan for example it is considered completely okay it never occurs to psychologists or psychiatrists to try to fix it because it's not a problem and so it doesn't have any impact on your blood lipid levels on your heart rate on any of these health metrics that we read about in US biased studies. Wow and I think what's probably also connected to this and I'm curious to hear your thoughts about this, Helen, is that in our culture, when we exhibit a what is considered a, quote, negative emotion that you are usually supposed to suppress, the daily, the, the daily little rituals, like, how are you? And you'll say, I'm fine, I'm great, even if you're not, because nobody wants to hear if you're not good. And of course, when people, so often I experience it, that when people actually do get emotional and they get sad in a conversation, their immediate reaction to exhibiting their sadness is, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. They feel bad about feeling sad. And of course, when we're used to not showing our sadness, to hiding away or feeling 
it's not an acceptable thing, that leads to disconnection. And I think that would be a great cause for emotional, mental, and also physical dis-ease, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the shame as well. Carl Jung called shame a soul-eating emotion. And this idea that we feel this almost backpack of shame of, of feeling something when we're not supposed to be feeling it. Yeah, there's a high correlation between shame and depression and all of these negative health outcomes. And I think in the US as well, you'll be familiar, but the famous American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic Statist uh, Statistical Manual of Mental Disorder, the DSM. So this used to distinguish between ordinary sorrow and actual medical conditions. But actually, anyone exhibiting five or more out of the nine symptoms for depression for two weeks can be diagnosed with clinical depression, despite having very varying symptoms to someone else. And it used to be that there was a grief clause. So you couldn't be diagnosed with depression within two months of bereavement. But since 2013, the DSM-5 has done away with this. So now there is there is no distinction between an appropriate response to a time of life that we find ourselves in, a personal circumstances, big global events like a pandemic, for example, and a medical condition. So this pathologizing of sadness, I think, is really problematic in terms of shame. And as you say, of feeling like it's not acceptable to, to express this big part of our personalities of everyone's natural existence. Interesting. And where completely natural responses, like grieving when you lose a loved one, you're supposed to suppress them. I'm sure you may have experienced something similar and the people listening now as well. So when we go to a funeral and then after the funeral, the gathering, a friend, a family member who has lost a loved one, we try to make them feel not sad. We try to distract them from feeling sad versus what would likely be a very healthy thing to do to just be with them and hold space for them while they grieve and give them that space. And on another note, I remember being a child and I grew up in many different countries. I was born in Germany. I also lived in the US as a teenager. I do remember frequently when I would be sad about whatever, whatever you can become sad of as a child can be world injustices. It can be that you didn't win, your team didn't win at school. But the response of from adults would invariably be, don't be sad. <laughs> yes, yes. And this is a really tricky one. So I have three small children now. And of course, uh -huh. there is that natural inclination to, to make things better and to say, oh, don't cry. Oh, it's okay when someone falls down, for example. Yes. But actually, again, psychologists have now found studies going back decades now that this doesn't help. Again, you then feel shame. You distrust your own emotions. You think, oh, maybe I, I do feel sad, but maybe that's not acceptable. Oh, I better not feel that instead. And I think this then can snowball into, uh, we, you know, we see so many examples of by the age of about 10, boys learn that it's not acceptable for them to feel sad or cry. And so they reach for anger, perhaps from the emotions shelf. And mm -hmm. girls learn that they're not supposed to express anger. And so they... They, they perhaps reach for sadness, but again, that's not that accepted in many realms. So it's, it's a daily practice, my end, trying to not fix children and let them learn and let them be resilient and let them fall and hurt themselves sometimes because then you are building up their resilience and their immunity for the big hurts that 
life inevitably throws at all of us. Absolutely. And How to Be Sad is actually also the name, the title of your podcast. And I'd like to know from you, so uh, what are some ways, so we know it's actually really important. It's not just okay, but it's very important to allow sadness and sit with it. What are some tools that can help us move through the sadness, especially if we're not used to it, especially if we've been taught for most of our lives that it's better to suppress it, not show it, distract yourself. How can we start to sit with it? Yeah, and it is very difficult. And the fear of facing our sadness can feel overwhelming, but the cost of not doing so is far greater. And the longer we wait, the worse it will become. So as you say, the first thing is to stop fighting it, to just sit with it, however uncomfortable that may feel. And then I think there's really something around lowering our expectations of what we are going to achieve or perhaps tick off our to-do list during that time when we are really sad. I think many of us grow up in a culture of perfectionism. Social media, we see these impossible images of achievement and productivity, and we don't measure productivity by how many acres we've harvested anymore. So the amount of likes on Instagram or the amount of time we spend sitting at our desk at work becomes a proxy. But actually, when we are feeling sad, we have to be kind to ourselves and take that time and stop apologizing, as you talked about saying sorry too much earlier. And and then trying, for me, getting some perspective has really helped. So I've also looked at different cultural approaches to emotions and some of the ways how books, for example, and different um, culture can give us a great perspective when we're feeling sad. If we look back and perhaps read a book or listen to a piece of music that's hundreds of years old, that really tunes into what we're feeling just now, it helps you to feel less alone. And studies show that actually playing sad music when we're feeling low can feel like a companion. It fosters a sense of belonging and gives us an identity and even helps us heal, according to science. This idea of culture vitamins, as I call it, are really helpful. And then the other big thing is doing something for someone else. I think during covid we've all felt that we are all interconnected and you'll know the science of warm glow giving and the idea that if we're in an MRI scanner, our brains light up with the pleasure of doing good. But actually, if we're sad and we just do us, the chances are we'll still be sad. So when we are sad, we are at our most empathetic. We are more generous. We have greater perseverance, greater attention to detail. It makes us more grateful for what we've got. So when we are sad, it is the perfect time to to do something for someone else. And that really helps to move forward. That's wonderful guidance. And the interesting thing about you is you're actually a happiness researcher and you wrote a book about the global secrets of happiness, the year of living Danishly. And um, you share in the book, the secrets of happiness. I think it's from over 30 countries, right? It's different cultural concepts, habits, and attitudes that are keeping people happy worldwide. Can you share with us some of the most surprising insights you had while writing and researching for this book? Yeah, so I wrote... I used to work for Marie Claire in the UK and then I left and worked as a Scandinavia correspondent in Denmark where I moved to and I started writing about this for UK newspapers and the book The Year of Living Danishly grew out of that because it had just been voted the world's happiest country in the UN reports 
And that book got published in 21 countries around the world. And I started to hear from readers in other cultures sharing their own experiences of what makes them happy in their country. So then I wrote The Atlas of Happiness, looking at these 30 different countries and 33 different concepts, as, as you said. And some of them were really interesting. It was the antithesis of others. I'm not great at relaxing, but the Italian idea of dolce far niente, or the sweetness of doing mm-hmm. nothing, um, really appealed to me as something that I'm not good at and something that's worth working on. Because actually, it sounds very simple, but it, it's almost radical in its simplicity, because instead of trying to control the world and saving up our fun quota for a big weekend or, or an annual escape, a big vacation... Italians spread it out over the minutes, hours and days of the year and enjoy life in all its messy reality. And as a kind of former reformed perfectionist people pleaser, this really appealed, this idea of just letting the chaos wash over you, (laughs) as did the idea of actually the, and you'll have spoken about this before, but the wabi-sabi, the Japanese concept Mm -hmm. of embracing imperfection. And I came at this at a time when I'd just come back from maternity leave after having twins. I felt like a stretched ghost. I was just wandering around sleep deprived. But wabi-sabi and the idea of kintsugi, of repairing broken ceramics with metallic lacquer so that the cracks, far from being concealed, are highlighted in pure gold and the cracks are what is celebrated. And that really appealed because we all have cracks of some kind or another. We all have scars. And the Mm -hmm. idea that that makes us more than rather than lesser in this culture that really values the new and the unlined and the young, it felt really important to me. And then one more, if I might share, sorry, the the Brazilian concept of saudade, a Portuguese term, but it's huge in Brazil, this idea of a happiness that once was, or even one you merely hoped for. And this is this kind of bittersweet idea. And that's really what got me researching into whether allowing for this temporary sadness or this temporary not happiness could actually ultimately make us happier. And actually researchers from the University of New South Wales have found that it does, this accepting and allowing for temporary sadness is cathartic and it makes us happier overall. So that was the rabbit hole I went into. And then when I started talking about that book pre-pandemic, I would speak around the world at various events. I noticed that so many of the people I met were phobic of feeling sad and would ask, how can I be happy at times when really that was impossible? Yes, it seems like an odd jump for a happiness researcher, but there was a, a red thread and there was a line that made sense in the evolution of our understanding of happiness. This is so interesting, Helen. And so this this concept comes from Brazil that you just mentioned. So in a way, this can help us use unhappiness as a key to happiness, right? Yeah, I think because sadness is this temporary emotion that we feel when we've been let down or when disappointed. And it's a really helpful message. It can tell us when something is wrong, but we have to listen. And it's also Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, would talk about sadness and despair as the almost the agent of change. Because if things are ticking along nicely, there is no impetus to change. Whereas if you are sad, it's that stuck feeling that you think, ah, oh, something's wrong here. We are tuning back in with our bodies, our intuition, our gut, or whatever you like to call it, and thinking something is not right. So sadness is really a problem-solving type emotion because it makes you stop and perhaps pivot or do something differently or just look and see, okay, what is not working for me right now? So it's incredibly useful. And the idea 
of pushing it away makes us feel really bad. Studies show that if we aim to avoid sadness even a little, we limit our existence and put ourselves at greater risk of normal sadness tipping over into something more serious. So it's going to happen. We might as well know how to do it right. And what is what really comes into my mind right now is and I want to preempt this by saying there's absolutely a place and time and also a need for these medications, the uh, medications that people take for anxiety or feeling sad, depressed. I'm not talking about a clinical depression here. I have found that, especially in the US, these, I think one of the medications might be something like Zoloft or there's quite a few others. These medications are prescribed so much though. And especially when people are dealing with life situations that one would say, okay, this is a quote, normal, not so happy, but life situation that they're going through. And so the sad emotion gets numbed. And I often have the feeling also witnessing it in my close circles that sometimes people take these medications the, the because they feel sad. The sadness is actually tells them something's not right. For example, they might be in a dysfunctional relationship, but instead of looking at that, changing either the relationship dynamics, working on that, or getting out of the relationship, they take the meds in order to keep functioning in a dysfunctional life situation. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the DSM contains three times as many disorders as it did in its first iteration. So it's certainly, there is a place for drugs and talking therapy for depression. And I've mm. benefited from both myself, but it's worth asking not what is wrong with you, but what has happened to you mm. and not pathologizing normal sadness. And I think with SSRIs, they, it's very interesting because they raise serotonin levels immediately, but the beneficial effect on our mood takes weeks to be felt. And in non-depressed people, SSRIs, they have no effect and nobody quite knows why. It's, I spoke to some of the best brains in psychiatry and psychology around the world and even the biggest sort of geneticist, psychiatric experts still weren't quite sure how it all worked. We know almost nothing about the biology of the brain. And with neuroplasticity, we're learning a little more, but there is so much that is still unknown that, yes, relying on drugs as the panacea for everybody is perhaps not the most helpful thing. Yes. And I'm also, I had another guest. She calls herself a holistic psychiatrist, Dr. Ellen Vora, fantastic woman. And she said that one of the issues she has with how she has been taught is, yes, we learn how to prescribe these medications to our patients. However, we don't learn how to get them back off of them again. So you end up with people taking certain medications for the rest of their life where they may just need them actually for a certain time in their life where they can be supportive, but they're not taught to then how to cope with it and move out of the medicated state. You mentioned it just right now, you yourself suffered from depression and you research, you write about happiness. Would you share with us about your own journey, Helen? Yeah, so this was a personal as well as a professional quest for me because it never particularly occurred to me until a very wise therapist said that he felt it was no surprise at all that I'd dedicated 10 years to researching into happiness when I was also 
quite scared of being sad. So when I was growing up, my little sister died and nobody talked about it. It was the 1980s. It was more of this sort of Thatcher years, just aim high, keep going, just aim bigger and better and higher all the time. And my mom and I were expected to just get on with it. Within three months of my sister dying, my father left and I didn't have a relationship with him again. And there was just a sense that in our culture, in the surroundings, the society I lived in, we were just expected to be cheerful and get on with it. And nobody knew. The school didn't know. At one point, my mom was handed a picture I'd drawn of our family and she had to point out that half of the people in the picture were no longer with us. And so I grew up thinking, be cheerful, that's fine. And really, it was only becoming a parent myself and just seeing how much small children are were aware of. And if, as we mentioned before, the idea of not dismissing children's emotions, I'm really passionate about now mm-hmm. that children know what's going on. They are smart. They get it. We have to explain things to them in an age appropriate way, because if we don't, they will make something up. And for me, because nobody talked about my sister having died and all I knew is that everybody seemed to be happy and then she died and they were sad and so the message I told myself was that it would have been better if I had died and this sense of being unlovable just went with me throughout a lot of my life until I was fortunate enough to get some serious good therapy to help with that and so now becoming a mother myself after years of infertility and various other the struggles that we all face in our 20s and 30s it really struck me how I don't want to mess up these small people and I want to get this right and then when I started speaking about happiness and somebody in the crowd at one event said my husband's just died why aren't I happy how can I be happy again and I would just was really struck with the idea that sometimes we need to be sad and sadness is what we're supposed to feel after a loss and sorrow is the same response when sad things happen so I had to relearn all of this myself, as well as, I hope, sharing some of the expert advice that I got, because I'm very much the student here, not the expert, the, the advice that I got from some of the greatest minds that there are about how to handle sadness and how to do it well in a more productive way. Thank you for sharing that part of your story, Helen. And my heart goes out to that little girl that was left without anybody holding her in her sadness and how wonderfully you have let that grow into a life's mission that is helping so many people. I want to recognize that's really beautiful. And you just brought it up. Most of the time when friends or family tell us they're sad or let's say they're really also grieving, which I mentioned this before, our inclination is we want to, quote, fix them. So what is a better way to support them when they tell us they're really sad? It's recognizing that even if you don't know what to say, you say, I'm so sorry, I don't know what to say. And not making it about you and not saying, well, I knew my second aunt once removed also had that. And not trying to make it better necessarily, but just being there. And the psychologist I spoke to said that it doesn't necessarily have to be a professional who you speak to. It's just talking to somebody who's going to listen without judgment and not interrupt. So that's a really key thing that I try and do now when I'm supporting friends is just being there. And if someone's not ready to speak yet, then perhaps you're sitting with them and you're just 
being there and letting them know that you love them no matter what and you're not going anywhere or just checking in and saying no need to respond just thinking of you and just not trying to go with this kind of toxic positivity that I think many of us are around all of the time in our culture these days of just saying everything happens for a reason or um, at least it's not as bad as this or what a great opportunity for this or that just recognizing that sometimes bad things happen it's not our fault it's just what's happened and perhaps no amount of manifesting was going to change that and we have to just sit with that and be sad and support the people that we love Mm. yes absolutely and I think this is really a a key term the words toxic positivity (laughs) living in Los Angeles, California, I encounter that a lot. And it might be very well intentioned, of course, to think it's really important to recognize it as well, though. And it's because it's so easy to fall into that trap oneself or to feel shamed by it. And so just recognizing it and being aware of it is really important. Helen, you're also an international keynote speaker, and one of your keynotes focuses on perseverance, resilience, and also how to remain hopeful in challenging times. Now, that really struck a chord with me, of course, because of the times that we all collectively have been going through in the last two years. And I personally have the feeling the virus is not even the end of it. We're living through a time of massive change and shifts and where you can't predict things. And that is very unsettling for most of us. Can you give us some pointers on how can we remain hopeful through these times? Yeah, absolutely. I think first to acknowledge that it's not always easy. And there will be days where you think this all seems hopeless. And that's okay, too. We've just been through a global pandemic. And now we're probably, there is probably a new pandemic of loneliness and many other challenges that many of us face. I think what really struck me researching the Atlas of Happiness and this book to an extent was that there are people in countries that have never topped any happiness polls, where any sort of metric life seems very challenging indeed. And there are still people finding ways to pursue pleasure and have joy and have love and have meaningful relationships. So there is an innate human resilience that we can see all around us. And if we do the slightest bit of digging, then we can we can read about, we have the internet, we can use it for good, and we can learn more about cultures that will only develop our empathy and our understanding that can only be a good thing moving forward. So I think there's that for for starters. I think it's also helpful to develop a, a personal toolkit, but also to be an ally and to be an activist. As we talked about the perhaps over prescribing and the pathologizing of sadness, I think this has been encouraged by societies less willing to step up and see that there are institutional problems and that if we all feel divided and fractured and tired and exhausted all the time, we are not in a position to to stand up and be counted and to restore ourselves, recoup, and then get it back out there to fight another day. So I think it, it's seeing that it's we are having to look after ourselves perhaps more than we had anticipated. But when we do that, we get out there and do something positive. And then in terms of reasons to feel hopeful, even in the darkest days, and even I'm hearing a lot from readers in the Ukraine at the moment, But even 
in the most heartbreaking pictures or stories that I'm reading from, from people who've witnessed really atrocious things, there are always helpers in the picture or in the stories. There are always people in the background who are trying to do the right thing, who are good, who are kind, who are looking after people. And that personally for me always gives me a great deal of hope and sucker when things feel just too hard, that there are good people out there and sometimes we're going to have to find them some days and other days they will manifest and show themselves to us. Yes, and that I can completely, I completely resonate with that, Helen. Those are the stories that make me believe in humanity and that are just so uplifting. And I think something else that's really important as well is in the face of challenges and in the face of injustice and sadness, it is also very important to not forget to celebrate the beautiful moments and to really also sit with happiness and not feel guilty about the smaller or bigger pleasures that we have and not feel guilty about just feeling absolutely uplifted and happy. That is very important too. That's a great point. Yes. And I think the Brits, for all of our terrible repression, we are quite good at that in, in seeing the ridiculous. I have Irish blood and the Irish are perhaps a little better at it, but just seeing the ridiculous and seeing the funny and finding the, the moments of light, as you say, even in the darkest times. And I, I've had a, quite a few reviews of How to Be Sad, the book saying, I didn't expect it to be that funny. And, and it, it wasn't <laughs> intentional, but life is it's hard and sad and funny and brilliant and beautiful all at once. So I think you're absolutely right. Yes, yes. One, there is this beautiful quote that I'm probably going to butcher right now. Here it is, life, here it is, beautiful and terrifying things will happen. Do not be afraid. In order to move through life, with joy, with happiness, with sadness, with all of it, and all hold it and be with it and truly have a profound human experience. There's often certain practices that can help us. And this is something I like to pick every guest's brain about. Helen, do you have any practice that has elevated your life mentally, physically, and or spiritually that you would share with us? For me, it's probably the doing something for someone else, realizing that's a non-negotiable and then also around getting even in terms of the body. I was never sporty at school. My, my body seemed like either a pillar for my head or something to be made smaller as a way many people in a, in a female body often feel. I had you know, struggles with food and eating as I was growing up. And it's really only in my late 30s that I found a type of exercise that I loved, that I actually enjoyed. And that's paddleboarding in common with much of the world right now but I live near the sea I'm lucky enough to be quite close to it and getting out there on the water is uh, I don't I'm still working on my dolce farniente I'm not brilliant at relaxing but it's as close to meditation as I can get and it, it's mindful and I can often jump in the water at the end to get the cold water plunge dip so getting all of those great endorphins and just being on the water and seeing the sunlight really gives me such joy that sounds absolutely marvelous, Helen. I have not tried it yet, but that's how you describe it right now. Certainly inspiring. You'll have to get to the coast. Yes, and I am. I'm right here in LA. We have very cold water here. People who have not experienced it tend to think 
Oh, beautiful beaches in California. The water is freezing, even in summer. <laughs> interesting, whereas mine is Baltic, but actually quite warm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yes, yeah, always nature always keeps surprises for us. <laughs> Helen, for people who'd like to reach out to you or learn more about you, connect with you, how can they do so? So I am on social media at Ms. Helen Russell, 2S's, 2L's. My website is helenrussell.co.uk and I have the podcast that you very kindly mentioned, How to Be Sad. But yes, just I write for The Guardian and yeah, How to Be Sad is out now in paperback wherever you like your books. And I read the audiobook as well, which is always fun and a joy. And I did it in the lockdown. So I was locked in a cupboard with lots of duvets, but it was very fun. (laughs) <laughs> and that would be a treat you have a beautiful voice so um, thank you so much for joining us today on Superhumanize, Helen it's been really a wonderful conversation happiness and sadness all included thank you for making time thank you so much for having me a real pleasure Superhumanize Accelerated Evolution 